Welcome to the Film Situation Podcast. I am so honored to have my friend George Rudai on the Film Situation Podcast today. Welcome, George. Thank you for having me, Zef. It's, uh, I'm honored to be here. Yeah, it's uh, George and I have been collaborators for a long time, ever since my first early short films. George is actually one of the first guys that I knew that was pursuing filmmaking. You know, I just knew him and this other guy, Mike Reich, and then eventually Joel Martinez. And they were the first people that I'd ever met. It was like, ah, I'm actually going to be pursuing doing stuff with film. So yeah, a long, 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 long time ago. A very long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, George, tell us a little bit about yourself and your, your background and what you do. Uh, yeah, I mean, so I've been, um, I've been working primarily with you in films for you know, the last 15 plus years. You know, I got into, um, in my early 20s, I decided to kind of take a chance. You know, I was going through, I was kind of aimless in college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I kind of just, uh, I came across a book, The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama, talking about how to be happy and what causes people not to be happy anymore. And it was a whole idea of um, um, trying to find your passion in life. And what I always loved was cinema. I always loved film. And I thought... You know, especially in my early 20s, you know, I was like, hey, you know, you only live once, you know, take your shot, do something you love. And if you fail, go down swinging, you know, if at least you tried it, you know what I mean? So I decided to enroll into a film program in Brooklyn College. And for the next uh, four years from 21 to 25 or 26, something like that, I was in the film program at Brooklyn College, you know, what we call the poor man's NYU. <laughs> you know, that's the, that was our thing. I feel like Brooklyn College, by the point that you went there had a pretty decent film program it was a respected film program for sure i mean definitely for the money you for the price you couldn't beat uh what you got it's a cuny school so for for those who don't know city university in new york and there's only a limit of what every semester costs and you got great um great access to a lot of equipment i remember reading your curriculums so i i Mm -hmm. Went to film school vicariously through right. people like George and other friends of mine. Like I was checking out what books they were getting, and then I was also reading up on those books. And they seemed like you know, yeah, you had some pretty good it was foundation awesome. over there. It was awesome because the pe- honestly, it, it was the experience and the people I met was the best part of it. Because I always thought with uh, film or any art, like how do you teach art, right? How can that's you teach question. something? That's really subjective. Well, it's not objective, right? Yeah. What you can teach is the technical aspect of film production and video production, which is crucial. You know, this is what everybody forgets is that everybody thinks when they get into film, that's just an, it's an art form, but it's really a craft. And it's 99% craft, in my opinion, how you, how you think about it. You know, I'm big on that. So as you know, and several other people that I, know that I mentioned always on this podcast, I also, aside from being a filmmaker, I also teach film through a program called Film Connections where I'm, I'm a mentor of film. And so I'm big on the fundamentals. And, you know, I, I think story is a craft and, you know, filmmaking is a craft. And before you could really consider yourself an artist, you have to learn the foundations of the craft, and the foundations of narrative. I mean, yeah. So like the, and back to the school, like the, what I learned most was, you know, three-point lighting, how to use Anagra, how to record audio, how to record video, how to sync, things like that, editing, you know. That was uh, extremely important at that time. And that time was really when digital, so this is what, early, mid-2000s, 2005, something like that, right? So yeah, everyone's still wanting to shoot on film, 
but digital starting to become popular. But we st- we still can't get the film look on digital, right? Right, right. As, at that time, right, it was yeah, like not the as cusp, much. So it was just getting to like shooting on twenty four frames per second right. on digital. There's no uh, prime lens control on a lot of these cameras unless you had a big apparatus that you could kind of do that. Yeah, the Panasonic DVX one hundred B. That was my yeah, yeah, first you know, camera. We were two thousand seven. We were shooting a bunch of stuff on there. A 20, bunch of stuff. Twenty four frames, but we just never got that film look. You know, that was our, our short film stuff, but it was great for what it was. I mean, you can yeah. And then, um, so we were learning a lot with film, like actual film. And I learned. I remember there was I did not want to be a DP. <laughs> That's one thing I did not want to be a camera operator. I did respect the hell out of those guys and the work they put into it, but. An AC, a DP, like swapping out film and handling the, the camera rig was such a, it was tough to operate. You know, it was tough to manage. And that's one thing I knew. I was like, oh, this is, this is laborious. So George, did you meet any professors or anything at, at Brooklyn College? Or did you learn anything that had like a profound sort of like, it was like a takeaway that aside from just like three-point lighting or just techniques or, you know, was there anybody that either made a lasting impact on you or something that you learned that that was like a major takeaway? Right. That's a good question because skill wise. Yes. You know, there was a couple of great professors there that, you know, there was a legendary professor, professor Hornsby, who was the, uh, the, the, the main DP of the facility. And he was just a, a hard assed uh, old school guy. And I love the way he approached things, you know, and he kind of taught how to work on a film set. Which, as students, nobody really knew what a film set was, you know? Right. You know, I've... You'd heard of them, but you just, you know, didn't Yeah, we, we, we practically sh- know what yeah, it was. Yeah, everybody shoots some... Lo- like we, we, I used to shoot little stuff, you know, with friends with video cameras, things like that, but not a real film set. You know, like how... Who calls what? Who's in charge of what? Um, who works with who? And that's kind of like... He taught us the... I go back to that craft part. Like, he taught us the skill and the craft and the professionalism of a film set and how it operates you know, how it functions. And um, the other professors, great professors, you know, a lot of it was film theory, things like that, which, you know, as a love lover of cinema, which is great. You know, you just, you watch films, you dissect films, you know, but my whole problem with that was your take on a film is completely subjective, right? Like some people have... Especially on a David Lynch film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like whatever, like some people's favorite movie is Groundhog Day, Right. I love Groundhog. Yeah, me too. But you can't take that to film school and say that's the best film of all time. But hey, it might be my best. It's the best movie of all time for me or right. whatever it is. Right, 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 right. And so, that's not a right or wrong answer. It's not that's a right, just, or, right. So, yeah. And then, you know, teaching, like, you know, showing great films and I kind of, you know, dissecting great scenes, things like that. That was awesome. But as I worked more into film, I kind of thought how much of that was of these great films and great scenes were truly by design by brilliant filmmakers or it kind of everything just came together to make that perfect scene. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like not every, like, like the movie gods were smiling upon. Yeah. You, you know, like that day that actor just pulled a f- great performance. You know, the director called, he, he, you know, he blocked the scene perfectly. You know, like, you know, I feel like sometimes a lot of directors and filmmakers get too much credit and too much blame that makes right, sense right. because I was learning how many people it takes to put on a film, put a film together. Yes. You know what I mean? How, and just on student films, 
Say. How collaborative it truly is. Really. And it was, you know, 15 people, all student films were all helping each other on films, not making any money, obviously. We're just volunteering to help each other. Plus, getting some actors. How many people it took together to make a, a film that had zero budget on it? And how many things have to go right to make a great scene? Forget about a, f a movie, a, a great scene. And I was like, then obviously fast forward my career a little bit, like learning bigger scenes. And it's like that plus more when you actually get the real whether you get to uh, higher-end film productions. You know what I mean? Like, it's... So, I was kind of learning. There's no there's no magic behind anything. You know, you, like, the, the veil got pulled up. You know, you see everything, and it's just, like, it's, it's just work, you know? I, right, right, right. I, I do agree with putting in the work. Like, right. you know, it, and it's funny you mentioned that because I was literally having that conversation somebody yesterday that was asking for my advice about something. They were like, you know, by... This age, Tarantino is doing this. I'm like, well, what was Tarantino doing that you, you're not doing? I was like, he was doing the work. Mm -hmm. You know, like you're talking about doing the work, but not doing the work, right. you know? And not to not to put him down, by the way. Like, this is somebody that, like, you know, it's a friend of mine. I was just trying to give him some sort of tough advice. Like, hey, like, you know, you can't just be in your head about doing these things. You have to actually, yeah, like you said, you have to put in the work. Yeah, but I, I do think there's a sort of... It's like sports, though, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, sports is less subjective, right, because there's a winner and a loser. You, you have a, a soccer game or a football game. Like, somebody's going to be the winner. Somebody's going to be the loser. It's it's not quite that way with film. Right, but to get into to play a professional level or to be on that stage, you have to put the work, right? Yes. So even whoever wins loses the match, but just to get there is a victory right. in itself, you know? So that, that's what I think, right. like, are built into the fundamentals of, like, being consistent, yeah. you know? like there And there I do think that there's there's a certain sort of things that are more objective about, well, what's consistent? Obviously, in terms of the precision of what makes brilliant cinematography or what makes one outstanding cinematographer better than another one, that could be subjective. Right. But it's very clear what shitty bad cinematography right. is, right? Or what bad sound design is. Yeah, that's why. Right? I, or I, bad, even bad acting. The craft is objective completely. Like, yeah. the craft is... Learn the craft, I always thought. Like, when I was learning, because what's the percentage of being a successful filmmaker in Hollywood, for example, where you're making millions, you can make whatever movie you want? It's just Very tiny, small. It's, it's the smallest percentage of anything, whatever you want to compare it to. Right. It might be one of the smallest percentage of, of any career besides professional sure. athletics, right? I, I, I put it up there with professional athletics. You know, who yeah. knows? But at least, um, at least if you understand the craft, you can work in film, right? You could find, or, or in production, you know, like. Yes. So, and that's what, kind of go back to the other thing, like in film school or even, you know, like talking to younger people saying, oh, Tarantino was doing this, Tarantino was doing that. I always found a danger of comparing yourself to the greats. Yes. Right? Like, right. why do that? You know, yeah. You're on your own journey. Take inspiration from them, from their work, not from, what are you trying to mimic their life? Right. Exactly? No, that's like, a great point, man. You because... want to make good movies, like, Copy the not copy their work, but learn from their work. You know, obviously, be inspired. Yeah, be inspired. Learn from their scene, make their, their film styles. If you want to use that, that's completely okay. But you want to mimic their life. You want to copy exactly what he did at a certain age. Like that's silly to me. You know, yeah. this is your life. It's going to be your journey. Like you're going to have to, you know, execute on these things. You know, and like, I feel like, uh, you know. Some people, when they get into film, don't realize, and I was talking to the other guys over there, but I didn't realize this either when I got in, like how much hard physical labor filmmaking is. Physical labor. 
Yes. People. I agree. You know, me and you come from a real blue collar background. We know, do. Our families and we've worked hard. So when we got into it, you and I kind of picked it up quick. Like, oh, we got to move this shit around. We got to do this stuff. We got to put this stuff. And, you know, you were the director. I was the producer. And we were doing a grunt. Now the <laughs> we were grunt still later. doing the and grunt. We, yeah, exactly. Because we came from that background, right? That understood. You got to do it yourself. But I remember in film school, you know, I got in, I was 22. But a lot of kids were 18. And they come, they all wanted to be artists, right? They just wanted to make the craft. But they didn't realize, like, they had to do a lot of the physical work themselves to make their productions go. Yes. Right? And that's where a lot Especially of in the early days. You can't white glove it in the no, early days. Of course not. You know, that's your project. You want us to work on your project? You know, you got to kind of lead from the front. And a lot of these guys crumbled. I remember, like, they couldn't they couldn't uh, understand. Like, we had to get 12 C-stands. We got it pulled up. You know, like, they didn't get a call. Things like that. Like, and especially flow budget of people. Yeah, and I was just going to say, there's some directors on, this high, on the highest level of the game that are very hands-on. Like, James Cameron yeah. is very hands-on. Like, obviously, as a crew, like, he's yeah. not fucking around with C-stands and mm -hmm. stuff like that. But, like, he's operating camera. You know what I mean? I was reading the book. It's an amazing book, actually, about the making of 2001, A Space Odyssey. After Kubrick did all this preparation, there were, like, 1966 or whatever, when they rolled principal photography, like, the first shot of the movie, Stanley Kubrick flunked a 35-millimeter camera over his shoulder. He was physically operating the first shots of the movie, you know? And can you blame him? It's his baby. Yeah. He wanted to make sure it's perfect. You know, especially younger filmmakers, you know, I try to say, you know, you get, you got no money. You're working with people that are volunteering to work on your project, right? And if you if you go into that with a my shit don't stink attitude, people are just going to walk off your set and your film's going to suck. You know what I mean? Yes. You have to lead from the front. You got to you gotta be the hardest working person in the room, and I hate that cliche, but, like, literally, true, you though. have to be. It like, is true. You have to be the one there that's like, okay, you can't just point fingers and say this needs to go there, this needs to go there, this needs to do this, this needs to do that. Like you gotta actually make sure that happens because this is your project, dude. And a lot of the volunteers, obviously, they want to get experience and work on some film set, but at the end of the day, they might not give a fuck, you know, if the the film's successful. Hundred percent. But as you, as the filmmaker, if it's you're the producer or director, or whatever, this is your for that few months or that year, or that two years, this is your fucking the only thing you're working on, the only thing you're thinking about, right? So, and back to the physical labor part of it, a lot of people, when they get into film production, they just get pushed out right away. Like, you know what? I'd rather be a writer because <laughs> they're not part of that. I don't, I don't blame them. I, I, I don't, you know? And that's where I think the art is in film production, in, in film. Like, it, most of the art is in writing, right? Because that's, that's what's art, really creating something from nothing. Think about it, right? True. I always said you're the best writer I know. But creating something from nothing is the art form, right? Is really is really art. You're just sitting there by yourself, and you, you, your imagination is running wild. You're putting all these things together, right? And the craft is actually what puts the makes makes that thing come to life. And I also think there's another part of the art where it's really acting, obviously. But direct, I think it's all an art. Right. So I, I gotta like respectfully disagree that I do think it's all an art. Like I do think lighting, lighting is an art production design, man, that's a fucking art. Yeah. Editing is an art. It's all an art. But I think before somebody, cause I used to do, you know, that I used to do welding iron work mm -hmm. and like, you know, I was involved in that. Like, you know, I, I wasn't even really truly a welder. I was more of a general contractor that had like a welder on my team, you know, right, right, right. but I was doing iron work mm -hmm. at a young age, had like a welding company and, but I always said that, like, I compared it to, like, welding, right? 
if there are pe- welders that make like ornate wrought iron work that like beautiful things, mm-hmm. right? But before obviously they go on to do like do that stuff, that intricate stuff, they have to be able to build a hand railing that's not going to break when somebody puts their hands on it. Sure. And so and so I think the story is the same sort of way. Like before you fancy yourself as an artist, you know, lighting, editing, whatever is the same way. You have to be able to like build that structure that's not going to collapse. And then you then that's like the fundamentals. That's the crap. And then by doing it and doing it and doing it, then it kind of ties into a conversation. Well, what is talent? Like, what is talent? Mm-hmm. Some people say, like, hey, talent, you're either born with that or not. I kind of disagree. Of course I do. I, because right. yeah. I, and, you know, I mean, we're both of Albanian descent. And Albanians are kind of, a lot of Albanians sort of think that way. Like, somebody's either just that way or that they're not that way. That's either for them or that's not for them. But I think that talent, if you really look at talent, what is talent? Talent's a repeatable skill. Yeah. Like, if somebody's a piano player mm-hmm. could they play the piano amazingly the same way every single time right. what, and so what does it take to do that repetition repetition practice. repetition practice so i i think like anybody if they're really into it but usually people that are talented are just very focused and they just have an additional interest in that thing so mm-hmm. they're playing piano it's not a chore for them to play piano for 10 hours a day they want to play piano for like 18 hours a day right. you know what i mean so that's what they're doing from a young age or whatever. And then that's why they are talented is because they, and then I think it ties into self-criticism because right. if you like kind of what you said before, you're like, Oh yeah, everybody's known those younger filmmakers that like they step onto a film set and they think they're, yeah. you know, God's gift yeah. to like filmmaking the next Scorsese or whatever, yeah, you know? And then they think the road is just going to be paid for them every step of the way. And that's just obviously not the reality. That leads to my question. Like my question to you, I wanted to bring up today is, Directing really an art, and I think I, I'll, I'll go back to what question. you're saying because everything else, like you said, you know, lighting, editing, they're all crafts, but there's an art to it because there's always something because there's something creative to it, right? Acting, especially. I feel is the director really just kind of the the uh, what's the guy called? That's the, the, yeah, the composer. The composer, really, just making sure all these artists are in line and making sure uh, the the project happens and the story is told in a certain way. Yes. Yeah. I, I would say, I would argue yes. Mm-hmm. Because, and I am a director yeah, yeah. and, and I think it's more, more of a craft than, than an art. Obviously it gets into that artistic territory. If like, like I'll look at the movie Phantom Thread mm-hmm. by Paul Thomas Anderson. And mm-hmm. I, I thought he just, he crushed it in that movie. And it was so well made, so well directed that it gets into a level where, wow, that's an art. Right. That it really is. Or like Stanley Kubrick, sure. 2001, A Space Odyssey. Like he poured his heart and soul into that film. There's so much in there and it's so Kubrick. There's no one else on planet Earth that could have done it besides him in that way. Then it gets into that level of, wow, that's an art. For myself, when I'm making my own things, I love it. I, I love the medium and I, I love cinema. I can't. I can't approach it that way. Like, oh, you don't understand my art or, you know, whatever. I'm actually looking at it from all those other departments because there is a famous screenwriter, actually, one of the, uh, William Goldman, yep. who did uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Princess Bride. And I love Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. That's one of my favorite movies. And I remember watching it one day with the audio commentary, which is something I think we're missing nowadays. But that's, a, that's right. an aside. But I was watching the DVD with William Goldman's audio commentary. He was the screenwriter. And he said, for a film 
to be an amazing film, it has to have six elements. It has to have a good story, which is a good script, good acting, mm-hmm. good cinematography, good sound design, good editing. And I would say, I always leave directing for last. I don't know which order he said it in. But I would say directing is the last thing, good overall direction. Because I think directing, what is directing? It's the leveling off of all of those other things to make sure that, that they're precise, right? Yeah. I, I think my question is more, so I get that when, when we're putting the... F- when you're putting the film together towards the end, right? We, we, everything's shot. I think that's where the director really comes to life. I, I, now, now I'm not talking about you. And, and, no, so I know what you mean, though. Like, I don't think you're wrong. Because on, on set, just think about on set. Yeah. When all the glamour is gone, when it's just really lights, cameras, everyone's waiting for the, the scene to get set up, moving props to place, getting the actor ready, micing her up, getting like the real technical side of it. And we get everyone to place. There's 20 people looking, and we call action, you know. And we, we get the shot, this uh, couple takes. Like, is that part, like, the on, on set director, is that part where he does his art, or is that where he's just going through the cra- motions? I, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. Like, or like, when, he, when his magic comes together, his art comes together, is when he's getting everything in the beginning, when he's putting the movie together, exactly what the story is going to be. And then towards the end, after it, like he's telling, he's giving the, the editor where he wants everything, telling music composing where he, how he wants it, this and that. Like that's where he's the maestro of everything. But on set, like when he's just, when we're doing the shots, is that, that part of directing, is that part of like a, are you just like a, you're just directing action. Are you, are you being artistic at that moment? I think it's so. So I think that's where you have to be on problem solving mode, straight up. Right. You know. Right. And I think the level of being a problem solver, Mm -hmm. being like fighting for your vision, like like really dialing. Let's say if it's like performances that something's not right. Does this actor need another take? Could we could we tweak or modify this? Those mo- modifications, because you know that, especially on an independent film, yep. especially on an indie film, yep. things are going to change, yep. you know, like in some sort of way, problems are going to happen. I mean, George and I shot a movie called The Trouble, and we're, we're going to get more into that in a few minutes. Yeah. But I, I do think I, I do think a main part of directing is how action-oriented, how, how problem-solving you could be on set how much you could fight for that vision. But but you're right also in a way that the the pre-production and the post-production are major, major contributing factors to making and directing a film. Yeah, and I think that's where you excelled and you found kind of your footing, you know, being a director. Because I think that's why I lost my passion about it. When I got into film, I was... Because you were pursuing directing, directing yeah. yeah. But when I got to film and I actually directed my own short and, and, and put everything together, I was really, and maybe it's because it was just the productions I was working on and it was obviously no money. And like I said before, you're doing a lot of stuff yourself. But I felt more like a, produ- a producer. Like I had to get everything going. I had to take care of everything. I had to make sure everything was ready to go. I had to make sure this, this, that. Where when I was directing my own film, I didn't feel, I was never in the spot where I was focusing on the performances and the art. I was just making sure... I had my my shot list. I had to make sure I had to get these scenes. 
I had to make sure I had to get in this time. I had these people only this long. And I was just focused on that part of it where the joy of directing, like I thought maybe that was what directing was. And for me, I was like, this is, this is not what I thought it was. And this is not what I want to do, honestly. Like that's yeah. where I kind of like lost my drive to be a director straight up. I mean, I think filmmakers covers a lot, a big, a big umbrella of a, a bunch of people, but like being a director, like a move, a filmmaker like in, in that sense. At that same point, I found being a producer or production manager, whatever you want to call it, um, kind of being the the guy that assembled everything, I kind of found my niche in that part, you know? And I was like, you know what? I'm going to let you, <laughs> would mean you started sicking up and do it. I was like, you can direct and I'll make sure all this other shit happens around yeah. you. So you don't have to try to get a lot of pressure off of you because I remember the pressure on me when I was directing that. Maybe it's almost like, can you direct and, and produce at the same time or just be... Yeah, can can you do that? And I said I I knew I couldn't. I was like I, I don't want you to have that same pressures, even though we still had you had to go through a lot of that stuff when we were doing our stuff. But um. yeah, but no, man, I'm I'm incredibly grateful mm -hmm. to you. It, like if it wasn't for you, the trouble would not have happened. Straight up, you know. And I'll tell the story about that in a, in a few minutes. Sure. But but for those that don't know George, George is a beast of a producer and and instrumental into me doing anything with film. Right. Honestly, you know, really. You're too kind. You know, man, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful beyond belief because really you did, you did do so much and I couldn't have asked for a better producer. No, truly. I, I, and right back at you because I honestly, like I said before, I was giving up on film. Like I did my, my short film. I never finished it, mind you. I'll tell everybody. I never finished it because I, I, I had, I was one of those dream big projects where I bit off more than I can chew. I was trying to do a lot with special effects and colors and things like that. And obviously you don't have the money and you don't, then you end up, end up running out of time because, you know, you gotta get you gotta work, and it it's just something that was never finished was, and I wasn't really mad at it. I was just like, you know, maybe this thing wasn't for me. Like I thought before getting into film, I was gonna sw take my shot, and if I, I didn't like it, move on to something else. And then then when you started saying, hey, can you help me on these productions? You rekindled that little flame I had where I was like, you know what? Yeah, for sure. I wanted. I still want to be on set. I just don't want to be. I, I didn't want to have my mind, I, I wasn't comfortable putting the vision I had in my mind, making that into reality. I, it, it wasn't kind of, uh, wasn't the direction I was going, basically. Then yeah, I was like, yeah. but I'm going to help you make your vision a reality. And that's where I kind of found my, my footing. You know? you, that's why you were, yeah. also, you were also a great creative mm -hmm. producer, because mm -hmm. beyond just, hey, just dealing with the logistics, you were, you were really involved in yeah you know, and I, making elevating the story right i love the that. shots I like loved, as best as it could possibly be yeah i loved you know you sending me you know pages and saying hey dissect this critique it you know like you know that was what i thought was real cool like you were open to critique like you wanted me to kind of shred it apart like hey whatever holes you find let me know you know sometimes i was brutal and sometimes i love things that you ended up not liking on your own <laughs> script <laughs> you know you changed you know things like that but <laughs> but at the end of the day i was gonna do my best to make sure your your vision was executed, you know. Yeah, and, you know. So and we gotta we gotta give a shout out to Mark Marini, who was the co writer oh, yeah. to the Trouble. A lot, a lot yeah. of projects, you know? yeah, a lot of projects, and so many people, so many people were instrumental to like helping like, the team. There was Sandy, yeah. there was uh, you know Joel Martinez, obviously, and you know who's who's still in the fold, mm -hmm. and, you know, just like 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 I'm just grateful to everybody that really just you know I think about that sometimes. I feel so lucky that. So many people were really 
not just rooting for me behind the scenes, but really there, like in the trenches, involved in in things. It, it it's one thing that pushes me too. To yeah, what was great about it was that say like like Joel Joel Martinez for example, it was the same boat as me. Like we were it had some background in film, but we were kind of like giving up on that passion. A bunch of other people were just starting to get into it, but they had nowhere to go. But when you when you we started when you started getting these projects, it brought us all together and kind of reignited that stuff. So that was awesome. It was like uh, a lot of people that were like kind of done with film, but wanted to get back into it, but they couldn't do it full time. And you made them full time for yourself. You did all these projects, but we could jump on and kind of piggyback off that. That was great. So, so I guess you know what I'm just gonna close that door for a second because it flew open. So now I think it's time to tell the story of how uh, our movie The Trouble sure. came together because George was incredibly instrumental into that because I was trying to way back in 2014 I was trying to get a bigger film developed I had done about eight short films and I wrote this movie called Instant Gratification mm -hmm. who I also wrote with Mark we had written a lot of our projects together and you know I thought it was a good script sort of a dramatic comedy and I went to the Cannes Film Festival I attended Cannes in France which is obviously the biggest film festival in the world, but it's also a film market, and they also have all these producing workshops. And it was just such an eye-opening experience attending it. You know, this is just, it was just incredible. It really was just inspiring. And one thing that I did notice, though, from a business standpoint, is that finished films, like trying to get your first film going is almost impossible. It feels like the most impossible, arduous task ever, ever. But having a finished film, it's a different story. You know, a distribution company could pick it up and, mm -hmm. you know, people are more willing to buy a finished film or distribute a f finished film versus giving somebody that they don't know, like, a chance on a first movie that, right, you know, right. they don't know if they could even pull off a movie in general, you know? So after I came back, I was just really inspired. I was trying to get this film going. I got some interest. It was like a $2 million budget project. That's what it was budgeted out to be which is a lot of money, but not a lot of money for, for a movie at the end of the day. You know, that's very small budget compared to yeah. most movies that it's, people watch. It's one episode of Law and Order. <laughs> yeah. That. Yeah. Not even. Yeah, maybe not even, right? And so still a lot bigger than anything we had ever done. Like right. way, way, right. way bigger. And so George was like, you know, why don't you make like a micro-budget movie and we kind of pool our money together and see what we could do. And then I was like thinking because I was like, well, I can't do that movie because I, I do believe I'm a firm believer that each script has its own budget. Yeah. You know, you can't make fucking total recall on like, you know, a $30,000 budget, right. you know? <laughs> yeah, I remember like, uh, so I remember saying like, let's just make our own movie from nothing. Like, cause remember the, those, what was it called? Bumblecore films? Mumblecore. Bumble, Bumblecore. Yeah. Where the, they were just, you know, four actors in one location talking the whole fucking time right yeah so that's what i was trying to yeah, say like and filmmakers you, like joe swanberg yeah. and i was and into you, that as you well were, you were into that and you had you know you definitely had the knack for writing to because i always loved your dialogue you could just make people talk about random things that were interesting and i was like dude you gotta let's just do this we'll do something a full you know feature-length film something super small highly active and then i was like just show off your director or directing skills we'll just get some good actors we'll get and then i was like just keep it small let's just keep four people and write a real script about it and you were like you're like like yeah let's go you know like like like, like that was originally i think 
the, what sparked the thing. Oh, like, just, yes. No. Okay. Like, so just make a film. Like, you know, I was like, just make a film, an easy film. I like, just, let's make yes. A just yes. Make a okay. So that is exactly yeah. what happened. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You're refreshing my memory now as well because it's been some years. Yes. And so, <laughs> so, so George gave me some parameters, guys. He was like, All right, just make it very few characters, very few locations. It will, we'll do it. All right. And then Mark wrote this script. It's like an ensemble piece. All these fucking locations. It's an urban western. Oh, it's low, no longer a mumblecore thing. We started calling it Bronx core, but like, really, what the fuck is that at the end of the day? I thought it was an urban western. No, it's an urban western. Like, urban western, right? And then, so George, I remember the first phone call. Now, the first phone call, he was like, Yeah, I read the script, man. Like, like kind of like, you were kind of like, What the fuck? <laughs> I was like, so pissed. <laughs> he was so pissed. I remember off. I read the script. And you like, and you know, when you, when you're, when you have your mindset, your mind is set. Because I remember we were, we were scheduling the shoot dates before you even sent me the script. We're like, we're shooting in June of whatever year. Or whatever. I was I so. You were like, it's convinced. happening in June. In July. July. Ju July. We're yeah, it was July fifth. This was year. when we started production. I think it was like January. You sent me the script or February. Or no, no, it was March. It was there? You go. It was we March. had four months. We had four months of of principal photography, pre production, pre production, anything you want to call it. Uh, to to make this movie happen, and he sent me the script, and and let me tell you something, it was a dope script. It was just I just remember every page was a new scene, a flashback of a different story of new characters, and I remember I was getting so angry reading it, and I was just I pull out a pen and paper, and I was like scenes. I made like a, a bunch of categories: scenes, characters. Um, you props, made a, you made a breakdown. Breakdown. And I was just, I was doing like tallies, checking like how many different scenes, how many different locations this would be, right? How many different uh, actors you needed. And I was just, I just remember this, this tally just kept going and growing and growing. I was like, oh my God, we got two weeks to shoot this thing. I was like, this is, this is too much. But I remember saying to you then, you know, that's the good part of writing, I guess. You know, like at, at first you need to write with no budget, I guess, in mind, right? Like you just need to let the creative, creative juices flow. And then... Me, you, and Mark got together, and you know we tightened as much up as we could. You know, we cut to some scenes that were like, "Listen, this thing, right? We just can't afford." We it. did cut the guys that got shot at the strip club. That's the scene I'm thinking about exactly. Yeah, we yeah. Had this whole, it would have been a dope scene if we had the money. You know? <laughs> right, right. It would have been. And I, I always said the trouble if we had five million, if we had two million on the budget, like if we had more money, it would have been the like it would have been a, a fucking. Fantastic. Like, yeah. You know, like, we started shooting it with twelve and a half thousand dollars. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we didn't yeah. have anywhere near no. one million dollars. Nowhere near that amount. Yeah. So never mind two million. And the project, never mind five million. The project was it was uh looking back at it, it was like one of the fondest times memories, you know? Because we were all in. You know? Yeah, especially, we were especially you. I mean, it was you you call me the producer for sure, but you were definitely the lead producer you know i i was doing as much as i can to help you with it but you know you you were still doing the bulk of the work you know you know i I'm, couldn't have done it without you man truly Listen, yeah was, and so obviously so, it's a collaborative um, effort but the stress you had you know especially forget about when we should like dirt like this set it up to shoot it but afterwards you know like um yeah so that's uh yeah it was an amazing time i i gotta admit in full disclosure mm -hmm. <laughs> now that we're having real talk yeah you know how we did a bunch of pickup days after the two weeks? Yeah. I knew it wasn't just going to be two weeks. Yeah, no. So, had, <laughs> so the, the tough part of it is I had a... a, a, a but with a, that being said, I obviously was 
financially right. vested into those pickup days. I'm not saying, hey, that was on George, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden, hey, George, I knew it's going to be more than two weeks. Here's the bill for it. It wasn't like that. That's yeah, not what yeah, I'm no, no. saying. But <laughs> the whole, like, when we put the, the shot list together, you know, we, we had, I think, 17 days total. So we had 17 days, right. and then I, I always say there's – there's probably about what ten or so pickup days after right. that. There was, sometimes we had a very very skeleton crew. Right. Then we had like one reshoot scene, mm-hmm. you know, and then just other things like the church stuff, which everybody always was when they see that scene inside the church. Yeah. Like when Marisol goes inside the church, they're like, "Wow, how did you guys find that place?" I'm like, "That's my producer George. He yeah. found this amazing place." I, I remember when we first started, uh, even when we first started shooting films, the whole. We, I, I always said, I was like, dude, we're so lucky we're in New York City because New York City is the character of its own because you could shoot, at, like, especially in the South Bronx or anywhere, you know, you could find places that look so glamorous or so desolate in just a few block radius, you know what I mean? I was like, New York City needs to be a character in all our films. Yes. We, you know, New York City born and raised and we're here. I was like, we can't, like, let's let's shoot outdoors as much as we can. Like, let's take advantage of every single 100%. spot we had, you know, and then... And that helped with us finding locations, like you know, just public location, private location. There's like a, like there's thousand like I don't know a thousand churches here, and we just went to a few of them and finally found one that we can. Like finding those locations were so much easier because there's so much so much more of these locations, you know. So so the films are urban western set set on a guy who's basically like this geeky sort of guy who mm-hmm. plays online poker, and then his favorite websites get shut down. Then he's kind of a fish out of water playing in person poker at these underground games where then eventually they get busted by the cops. He meets a beautiful but mysterious girl is like, are they really together? What's her deal sort of thing. And then there's a a thug that's after him and for big money because the game got shut down. And so then uh, the main character, Billy, he approaches this guy named Pitt, who's this mysterious sort of private detective of the street sort of guy to help him, with this thug get out of the trouble but things become worse when because he sort of deceived this guy into taking on this case in a major way um so it's a kind of a crime story kind of you know blend of genres that's kind of like where we had in mind the bronx core thing because i like the mumble core thing in terms of having dialogue having the ability for actors to improv because I, I do really love ad lib and improv when it's done the right way. Yeah. We found that, you know, it's challenging yeah. in certain, certain as, other as a, ways. As a producer, I, I didn't like it <laughs> so much. Yeah. It's very it was, challenging it because really you, then you have to bring in two cameras. Then, you know, then yeah. it's like, how do you structure the scene sort of cinematically? But at the same time, we had no time for rehearsals really, you know, like we did a little bit of rehearsals, of course. Yeah. But not uh, proper, proper uh, time. But then yeah. again, it makes me wonder how many, how many indie films do do proper rehearsals nowadays? Like in the days know. of Sidney Lumet, like he was really into, if you read his book, Making Movies mm-hmm. by Sidney Lumet, he was like, we had a rehearsal period for like weeks and we would sit down and do table reads and, you know, everybody came to this place in the city and all the actors yeah. showed up. It's like with the average indie film that you watch on Netflix, that's even in a $5 million budget and they're, they have stars in the movie. Like, are those stars rehearsing for that film? Like, are they... You know, um, yep. maybe sometimes, but I don't. I don't know if it's most of the time. I really don't think it's most of the time. I get. I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, how... I'm really curious about it. I want to, like, unpack that with other directors that right. are going to come to this podcast. But, like... Yeah, that's a good question to ask. I know that some people, they just... There's definitely many, many, many films. Well, the actors are just showing up many, on yeah, set. how many times do you hear that they... they some guy dropped out right before shooting and they bring somebody else. In. Sure. You know I mean, how many, that, that happens all the time. Yeah. You know, so. And there's no rehearsal yeah, period so there. I guess. Yeah. yeah right. Um, so, so one, one kind of, I think interesting approach that we had with the trouble, because I really kind of, I love what George says about New York being a character and particularly a lot of the film takes place in the South Bronx. And I was living in the South Bronx at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, actually I was no longer living there, but I still have my studio there. Yeah. I had just been living there recently before that and then when i got married i moved up to westchester but so so it was like two years later one thing that i really wanted is to showcase the south bronx to have that as part of the setting in the film before i honestly knew what the film was completely about that was kind of me and mark were hatching out what the film was even about and i was going around taking location photos that just looked dope in the south bronx you're like i kind of first thought about the locations and then kind of molded the story. That's how we were able to pull it off on such a small budget. Because yeah. George and I were really, really smart about here are all the resources that we have. We have we've got a friend. Shout out to our friend Anthony mm-hmm. Arthur Cantino Wines that you know, uh, wine and liquor that he has a wine store on Arthur Avenue. And we were like, okay, well, we know one scene is going to take place in, inside of a yeah. wine store, at least one scene, because we have access to a wine store. That was like three films in a row. You know, we always <laughs> <laughs> we always shot a scene in the wine store, right? <laughs> but you know, it's yeah. it's almost like you're yeah. ma- like yeah. the, how how to make a movie on no budget. Yeah. You know, it's like you're almost taking like a binder of these things, these resources that you have access to, all these locales mm-hmm. in the South Bronx. That some of them are like really cinematic looking like underneath the bridge there with like the graffiti and all that stuff. It's like really super cinematic. And then I was going around just almost taking like location photos, taking B roll footage, just taking shots on my phone and then thinking about that. And then, then kind of retrofitting, well, what story would take place in there? I, cause that's one thing I was hard pressed on. I'm like this, where our studio is in the South Bronx in Mott Haven, you know, there mm-hmm. at the clock tower. I was like, that's our epicenter. I was like, we could keep costs down because you know how it is. Yeah. If you do a, a, a company move on a film set, you're going from location one to location two and all the gear and everybody's moving. That takes forever and ever. Time and time is money, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm like, how could we keep just this general area? Like, how could we keep it sort of in this epicenter? So like we could have everything as much around here as possible. That was one way to like keep costs at a minimum. How do we reuse locations? Like we used that apartment over there, like, you know, the main place, Billy and Greg's apartment for Billy and Greg's apartment. Then we dressed it up. Like we did production design. Uh, Shout out to Clarissa Garcia Fresco, who was a fantastic production designer. Like we were so grateful to work with her. How do we dress up the place? So then it's not just Billy and Greg's apartment. Clarissa was instrumental into, hey, it's, you know, and it was a challenge for especially for locations, you know, uh, choosing where we wanted to spend our little money that we had, you know. Right. So we knew, you know, we got we started with twelve thousand dollars, right? So we knew there was a couple scenes in a bar. We had to find a bar, right? You know, you thank God you knew some places that you had your eye on, and we went to these hole in the wall bars, made made some deals with the owner to get in there early. 
know, there's one in South Bronx, one downtown. Right. City. Yeah. There was that one in Alphabet yeah, City. And, and yep. there's such important, important scenes in the film that we were like, okay, we have to spend our money here. Right. Can, what other scenes? So now you, you know, running already that you're putting some of your budget into a certain bucket, right? Now you only have some, so much left over. Now, okay, what scenes can we make in your apartment? Can we just actually just pay, get 500, 500 bucks of some props and things like that that we could turn this out and make it believable? And thanks to Clarissa and a lot of people, we, you know, we did some of those scenes in the apartment there in the studio that, you know. Yeah, you know, yeah, that, yeah. That so, worked, you know? so that that was, that was amazing. Yeah, we basically called in every favor imaginable. <laughs> I mean, the challenge is, yeah. is, you know, it's so cliche, but the money is such a hard thing to handle because one thing about locations but you have to pay people right if yes. you want people to come back every day for a long period of time and you want high quality people of, of a certain caliber to to shoot this thing whether it be audio video anything like that you're gonna want to do you want to trust your film in the hands of someone who wants to do it for free just to get experience like you know some film still from film student maybe yeah i mean it's tricky because there was definitely people that were volunteering on that film. But we knew that there's certain things that we just like, we had to just yeah, pay. Yeah. We couldn't get a, a sound, a field right. sound recordist. We right. couldn't get like a sound guy for free. No. You know, like not like for that many days in a row, not that sort of high quality. We spent like a disproportionate mm -hmm. amount of our very small budget on good sound because yeah. George and I realized, man, so many films that are like small budget, that's one of the first things that they skim out on is sound and that's one of the last things they should skim out on yeah, because it's it really just takes you right out of the experience when there's bad sound right. and we trust me we learned the hard way yeah. <laughs> like that's yeah. how we we learned the hard way yeah. you know and you and i i think we knew there were some spots we could fill ourselves especially it's like hey if i can't pay a grip you know what i can grip for a day you know what i mean like we yeah. can do things like that like there's some things like hey we don't need a bunch of pas because okay well we're gonna load up the gear ourselves and we're just gonna get there earlier we can do that ourselves like right so that's the stuff we didn't have to pay for because then we'd have we'd have some volunteers, sure, but sometimes they couldn't show up. They actually had to go to a different job. So there were some things that we were like, we can do ourselves, and if we have to do it ourselves, obviously we didn't want to because we can't do everything ourselves, but if we have to do it ourselves, we can do it ourselves. But certain things we couldn't. The sound operation, we wanted to make sure sound was good because I used to do sound on some of the older stuff, you know, and it was just a boom mic and, you know, a little little mixer, and it came out, you know, Sometimes good, sometimes bad, but we couldn't take that chance. And you know, we got lucky with our and our camera operator because yeah, Alex. Alex, Alex is Alex really. That's talented. another example where actually Alex hadn't really DP'd a film right. before, and that's and why actually, I was nervous. I remember remember me nervous. George was very that. nervous, and I've always yeah. big about, been big about giving people chances when mm -hmm. I see potential in those people, like putting them into roles where other people are like, yeah, you know. But I was looking at it in a different lens than you because i was worried about it because i was like i was just looking at i filmed the position to make sure this guy could do the fucking job you know that's how it was i was just totally. like i need to make sure this guy can do the like we're gonna be tight i need someone to you know a dp kind of runs the set if you think about it like he, he he's he's telling a bunch of people, technically he's, three departments yeah. and i was just like oh man this guy's a little too green a little too green but when he, in pre-production when he's talking about how to make how he wanted to color some of the scenes and how cheap he wanted to do it and how things the way he wanted to do things with the gear we had, then I started to trust him. And I was like, okay, so maybe he doesn't have the experience to run. When you were spray painting light yeah, bulbs from Home Depot, <laughs> were you still happy? Or is the trust still there? Uh, it was, 
I mean, <laughs> on set, I was <laughs> trying to make these guys' creative visions come to life. You know? I was like, all right. George was. I was like, I'll make it happen. I could see how pissed off George was. It was like, what? The, what is this guy fucking having me do it? But yeah. when you saw the finished thing, we projected it, especially in Bronxville, because that was like mm-hmm. a proper DCP projection. Yeah. yeah. In like all this glory, where you're like, oh wow, Alex really actually did a good job. He re- he really did. He he yeah. uh, he he uh, he knew what he was doing. Honestly, behind the camera, he definitely knew what he was doing. And I think now, and that was great for him too. The experience he had on that side, because I mean, it was taxing on everybody, man. You know, twelve hour days, sometimes fourteen hour days, sometimes no. We did that. I feel a couple times. Listen, a couple times we did that, but I always but say me and you. I'm saying me and you were there. Oh yeah, me and you were and there later. the longest. We yes, did, we try to keep everything. But as far as the crew, hours, yeah. props yeah. to you, George. Mm-hmm. You were really yeah. an advocate of like you know, Zeph. I know we're doing an indie film, and you know the average thing to do on an indie film is just grind everybody for like twelve to sixteen hours a day. So like yeah. you're like, let's do eight hour days, eight yeah. to ten hour days, and if there's a couple of long days. And they have to be long days. People will be on board because they're long days. But he's like, I don't want every day to be like a really long day. I'm like, all right. Yeah. And then we did do that. Yeah. yeah. I was. I really wanted people to go home at the end of the day and be like feel refreshed. Unwind. Let them play. Do, do whatever the fuck they want to do, and then come back the next day to work. You know what I mean? I really wanted to create that environment where you didn't have to go to sleep and then at midnight and then be back at eight in the morning and you just drained and then it comes to man i've heard of even worse stories than that i i had a friend of mine worked on an indie film out of the area and they said that i mean they were shooting from like seven o'clock in the morning and till like two o'clock in the morning and like sleeping for like five hours and they (laughs) yeah i mean that's that's not good planning and people were the morale was definitely Definitely down at some point you know are they were those guys getting paid they were getting paid, but I don't think they were getting compensated. They were getting OT and double time. And no, 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 nothing yeah. like that. Listen, if you're a union guy in those hours, that's the best thing you could ever have to you. Meal penalties, double time. No, no, quadruple time over. Yeah, you're not going to mind that. But when you're doing, when you're getting people that you're 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 getting sometimes for free and sometimes for little little money, you don't want to take advantage of them, man. Because what if they told you the next day, you know, screw yourself, I'm out of here, and then you're down. And then now you're scrambling on the show. You it's know? not, yeah. You know, I, that's why I did not want to happen. I did not want anybody to walk off the set. I wanted everybody to have, you know, I used to kind of start, the, I remember starting the production in a kind of, uh, and sometimes too, when, when things got down, just kind of having a, a morale booster with the group. Now, that's the one thing I always tried to do is keep the set funny and light. I was always busting chops with people, trying to make sure everyone was having a good time, you know? Yeah. And I, I didn't want to get everyone so stressed. Because sometimes things were getting stressful, you know, the, we had to shut off the AC, is getting real sure. hot. People just, Human beings getting stressed in one spot. Things are taking forever. Lighting's taking forever. Things like that. But I was always trying to, like, keep the mood alive. And I was say some type of little morale boosters. Like, hey, guys, we're making a movie. Like, who, yeah. the, who, the, who else says they're making a movie? I was like, we're just having fun here. I was like, let's just enjoy ourselves. Like, you're going to remember this time. Say, hey, I made a movie. You know, we're actually making a feature movie. Like, and I was, I would tell everybody from the PA to whoever it is, you're a filmmaker. Like, you're making a film. Like, this is, you know, just because you know, your name is not directed by or whatever you're a filmmaker you're making a film enjoy it dude enjoy it because yeah no you were great about that i used to try to like even though when i was bummed but i was always trying to keep spirits light you know just keep people laughing keep busting chops you know so um because honestly i look back at it now and 
they made a movie, you know? A lot yeah. of people can't say that. A lot of people always dream about, oh, I want to be in the movies. I missed my, my chance, but we made the, we made a movie, you know? What, and I think we were also good about taking very challenging situations mm-hmm. and then making sort of, I guess, what's the cliche? Uh, making lemonade out of lemons. Yeah, you know, when yeah. there was lemons that were happening, there were a couple instances, a couple things that, you know, it's probably too painful to go mm-hmm. into detail about, but there was... There was one or two days where production was shut down and everybody was foaming at the mouth at first. Yeah, yeah. Like foaming at the mouth pissed. Mm -hmm. But then George and I kind of huddled. We're like, all right, well, how do we, how do we use this to our advantage and use this as time to just prepare and prepare and prepare now that we have like one or two days that we're not actively shooting to like prepare for these big scenes that we have coming up. And we did, we kind of, we did do that. It was yeah, for sure, you know, I have a tragedy. We made something like me and you didn't stop working, right? Like no, no, me and you the, never the, stopped the, working. The, the but show, there was other factors right, outside the show, of our control. The show got shut down, or the the the, the, the shoot got shut down for a couple of days, right? And we looked at it as like, okay, what can we do now? Okay, we we shot for five days. Now we've learned some lessons, right? Of shoot because even our our short films, we never shot. I don't, have you ever shot five days in a row? I don't think so. I don't think so, right? That was no. our longest It was more stretch. like on weekends. Yeah, weekends, we, things like that. Yeah. But this is our longest stretch of every single day. Yes. So we were like, okay, let's take a, now we have a couple of days to regroup and see what we, like, there was a lot of learnings within that five days. Like, it was like. Exponential. Four, four years of school in a, in a week, really. You know what I mean? Like, you learn more on, I always say, you learn more on a set than you ever learn in school. So, kids, if you want to be into film, get on some type of sets. You know what I mean? Because. That's where you'll you'll really pick up everything, and then um, and we learned so much um, that week, and even in, in like for a production standpoint, like, all right, now this is how we'll schedule things. Like, oh, we understand. Like, I don't need the actor here at eight in the morning when we're gonna. It's in reality, like we wanted to get start shooting at nine, but we knew, you know, we ain't gonna shoot till ten ten thirty. It's gonna take two and a half hours getting the crew in, getting them settled, pulling out equipment. Okay, like we we learned how to. In just five days, how to reschedule the whole thing to make the following week a lot easier, you know? And then yeah. following the shoots, you know? So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the whole thing is learning. You're going to be learning every single day, you know? Absolutely. So, yeah, I, the, looking back on the trouble, what mm-hmm. do you think was, like, the funnest part of it? Was there was there any scenes or anything that you were like, oh, that was that was a fun day? Or Yeah, you know. Because for me, nothing, it's, hard, it's hard to look at it yeah, that way too. because – we were just sort of more like focused on what we had to do right. and what we t- you know, had to accomplish and I, I just ne- grinding and pulling it off that like, I never unpacked it that way. Yeah. Honestly, I never, I, it's, it's, it's a, it's a fond memory. And I remember very clearly the whole like, time. Of it like before. screening the movie at the Bronx museum. Yeah. Like those parts. That, that was fun. Mm-hmm. Like screening the movie in Bronx for the whole, and then going out to like the bar with everybody and yeah. like, like the guys from the Bronx to lend us the poker tables right, right. and like having everybody there. That was just amazing. Honestly, the Bronx museum screening, that was one of the highlights of my life. Yeah, it was because awesome. even though the sound, like, it's a beautiful venue because it's, mm. it's a Bronx Museum of the Arts and a really nice looking place. Not the best acoustics no. at all, but it was still like just the whole vibe and the fact that it was sold out and just like having everybody there and then people were just sort of going nuts uh, and shitting our pants in, in a sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, because it was the first time we were showing to in front the of first time showing it in front of an audience. Period. Any <laughs> yeah, sort of yeah. audience. But to go back to the actual shoot, the the libraries, the, the when we had the the public library in the Bronx, uh, do you remember what library yeah, it was called? Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, I, for some reason I wanted to say it was called the 
So it was it was I, awesome. We had it was called the Huntington Free Library, or no, yeah, maybe like not, but it was like a closed down library. It was a closed down library. It was a part of it closed down. Part of it was closed down. Someone that was working on the on the crew had a connect there that let us. Yeah, it was there. Paulina Casey Paulina and Tom Casey. Tom Casey, your uncle. Oh, yeah. Shout out to Tom Shout Casey. Shout out to Tom Casey. It was, it was awesome. It was awesome. Let us guy. shoot there all day, no questions. We were there two two days, I think. It was yeah, it was, and we paid a very small amount of money. No, I think. nothing. You know, it was it was incredible because you know, Boardwalk Empire had shot there before that, and you know that they paid probably yeah. some serious money. And we set up the room, and we did we covered the. There's so many windows in this area, garbage bags, whatever we had to do, and then we did um. We, we we dress this place up awesome, and that's that's like Clarissa, like shining in yeah. her finest hour because that's what we use that downtime to mm-hmm. kind of dress that place up. You remember that because that's yeah. what we were doing. Yeah. We were dressing that place up on our like, and, and yeah, Clarissa taught me. And I was thinking, oh, I have to buy, you know, spend a lot of money on Duve to cover these windows. And she's like, no, garbage bags. It's a black, comp, uh, trash garbage like a, a high grade professional garbage con- contractor contractor bags. bags. There you go. Yeah, it covers it up and blacks everything out. Anyway, so we did all the stuff, but it was two days of shooting. It was the cli- it was it was the basically the climax of the film was there. Yeah, right. And that's right. Was, and it was the most I think stressful for me at least. I felt it was the oh most yeah, stress- it, was it was very stressful because we had the most people we had on the set. Remember, the we most had the, people we had like at least we had twenty a big people. poker scene there. We had a bunch, yeah, at least twenty people, three poker tables, a bunch of things, a bunch of favors had to get called in for that one time, get everybody to come in, and yeah, it was the most stressful part of the shoot because. It was the most. Uh, shout most, out to the sons of Illyria. Shout to out to guys. Simon, <laughs> Jonah, sat and there for Jack, Nadrew, and, and ten all those hours. Guys. Uh, thank God, thank God, bless them. They 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 shot. Um, they stayed there, and um, it was hot at times. You know, there was no air up in there. You know, we had to take breaks, but they they they, they stuck it through, man. And it was the scene came out great, but the finishing that when we wrapped that part of it was the best experience for the film. Film create the filmmaking process for me because that was the part I had the most doubt of and I was the most fearful of that whole couple of days we were there because of those things I said there were so many people coming yeah corralling all those corralling, elements the climax there was a gunfight scene you know we had to make sure that it was choreographed in a way where in post we can make it look good and it wasn't cheesy and things like that you know and um, and it was such a cool I mean think that that library was so cool that we we had. The, the backdrop of everything was just came out great, honestly. Yeah. And um, yeah. So finishing shooting there was the best part of it because that was my that was like the biggest hurdle for me. You know, that was, that was the climax of the film. It was like I think climax of the filmmaking process almost. Like that was the hardest thing, the hardest hurdle to get over, and we we did. You know, not to say the following week shoots because I, I had to go away for work and stuff like that, but not to say a lot of those things were easier or less important, but they were definitely not as heavy as that that that, that weekend. Yeah, yeah, no, there. I mean, man, a lot of a lot of fun memories, and you know, just exponential learning curve from, you know, doing that film for sure. I gotta say, the most painful part of that whole filmmaking process for me, even though it was, it was secondhand because you had to deal with it the most, was the post production process. You know, yeah, I feel like that was it was a real eye opener, like, uh, you know. And, it was like a puzzle, and that was you know really that was man. I had that to was do. you. That was oh you. My God. That was all you. You know, I tried to help as much as I can, but that was like what I there were some major up. challenges there the, too. The, that was the directors that, especially uh, indie film director, like that's their maestro moment, putting the film together on the, on the editing room floor. You know, shout out to Christina Nicolai, who was the yeah, editor. Editor, the movie. you know, yeah. we, then you know you getting the composers 
to put yeah andrew marinaccio and michael stevens data 91 they did yeah. an awesome job Ryan they those, they crushed guys they crushed it those are mark's uh mm-hmm. friends and they're very talented musicians and i couldn't have asked for yeah. you know couldn't have asked for a better soundtrack it was yeah. it was outstanding and uh yeah that post-production process i mean talk about it i mean i mean how, how long did it take honestly from from the last it took like a year yeah. more than a year of post-production it was like a year and a half almost because the film is not told in a linear time fashion we realized we had to reshoot a couple of the scenes um because it's it just it just wasn't working and it would have been a, a major compromise i think the only so there was a couple of things that i did one was i i essentially kind of like I made like a slide, almost like a PowerPoint slide for every scene. And I kind of made this random word generator. And instead of saying, this is scene one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's like, this is scene tree, or this is scene boat, or this is, you know, just random words. So then I could kind of, if I had notes on the scenes, Mm -hmm. then we could put, I could kind of have those on a spreadsheet and then because things were always changing right, around. The numbers didn't work because the numbers might, didn't might work. Move the scene to a different spot in the movie. Like you, you were coming up things later. So I was right? kind of coming up with this weird yeah. sort of alphanumeric sequence to kind of like shuffle things around, still put notes on things in ways where we could identify right. those scenes and that, but not feel bound to them in any sort of linear way because the story was to- told in a non linear time format. Then I had an assistant editor at some point uh, who was my former. Uh, film connection student Jason Malizia mm-hmm. he was instrumental into that whole process there was a, many people yeah. I didn't mention anybody on this whole process like it's not for any particular reason because there's so many people that helped right. out so many people and I'm grateful to all of them I honestly randomly think about it I'm like oh my god I'm, you know it's really cool of so many people to help out even my brother mm-hmm. and Danny came through and played like you know there were people that were that came through and like you know were in the movie and stuff so yeah so many people and so yeah, that was interesting. the the whole The whole post production process for this film, because it's again, it's a a movie that shuffles around in time, and so mm-hmm. then definitely things change from the script of how we're going to actually showcase these particular scenes. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I, I kind of took a binder, took like you know, like made slides for everything, and had this kind of whole deck of I'm yeah. um, shuffling things around. You also, you also had a newborn baby at this time. I did, you know, yes, yeah, child. yeah. My son Andrew so was, was, you know, like, well, he was, yeah, yeah one years old, one yeah, year old. So yeah, yeah, still very so young. So much, so many things you were juggling at the same time, and I remember I felt like a little bit helpless. Like you, you kind of, you were putting the film together, you know, like it was your, like that's when your creativity was really coming together. Like, like I was talking with Alex last night. I like you know? I don't look at it like, oh man, I wish we had more time or something to edit the film i feel like we edited the film as best as yeah, it I think could you had your pace uh, we, we, we weren't rushing to finish the film right? so that's one thing i think that we did was very smart mm-hmm. there's so many filmmakers that they're rushing just to make a deadline oh we, well, we got to finish to submit to sundance we got to finish it to submit to south by southwest mm-hmm. and our sound designer julian evans who uh man he did a fucking yeah. bang up job on the sound design again another thing me and george sprung out for after the fact i mean like the we spent a, a disproportionate amount of money of the budget on sound design because, mm-hmm. you know, we knew that that was going to be really the the thing that was going to make it yeah. really, you know, just that, like enhance the quality in, in a, a cinematic sort of way. And so then I had made a spreadsheet of like, you know, put out a posting for, to hire a sound designer 
I had a, at least a hundred responses. I remember making a spreadsheet of like, who are the hundred sound designers that wrote to us? I narrowed it down to like, you know, the the five best that I, I li- listened to everybody's stuff, check, checked out everybody's website. I was like, all right, like you know, Julian was um, he was sort of the top draft pick, honestly, because I also wanted somebody that was all uh, honestly like also a musician. Right. I felt that that was important because right. there was also this really musical. The music was so important to the film, and I wanted somebody that understood music on a specific way and maybe many sound designers also are musicians but i don't think all of them but me uh julian was somebody that that i saw he was also a musician and that was important you know yeah but yeah yeah it was an amazing experience man you know i went went to festivals i went to the action on film festival where where it won where i won one best director we won actually three top prizes uh Mm -hmm. best director alex won for best cinematographer at hollywood dreams and we won the Audience Choice Award at Action on Film well, in well, Las Vegas. Well deserved. It was well deserved. Yeah. But but it felt that yeah. felt that was kind of wild because that felt like sort of a rocky sort of moment because we were up yeah. against many bigger films. Yeah, you know, yeah, the audience one makes me make, makes me happy because that's really an audience vote. You know what I mean? Yeah, like it, that's not like any tomfoolery going on. You know, right? So yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It wasn't some guy. You know, people these other film festivals. You know, there's. Some shadiness, you know, people talk about, but this one was the audience award, you know? So, yeah, you know. that was kind of wild too, man, because when we were at the party after mm-hmm. the film when it premiered in Vegas, and people that I didn't know or had just met, they were like, hey, man, like, I heard you guys are the toast of the town. <laughs> I'm like, what? Like, it was yeah. just the, I had never been called that before, you know? And they were like, yeah, people were buzzing about your movie or whatever. I'm like, that is wild, you know? Yeah, and at the same time, like... um, you know, I haven't worked on films in years. Uh, the Trouble kind of, it, it was like the peak of my film interest in a sense, but it also kind of like, uh, even though I didn't work on it nearly as hard as you, but it also humbled me. And I, I, and I kind of looked at it like, I don't know if I could do one of these again. Oh, uh, like a micro budget. Yeah. yeah. I was like, I, I really don't yeah. think I can do, I, I don't have the, we did one, you know, and I was just so scared of doing another one like that. Like it really took a lot of took a lot out of me, and you know, took a lot out of you even more. But I was like, until we get like significant funding or something like that, like I don't know if I I could do it. You know, it re- really kind of uh, yeah tested me. It really did. You know, yeah. I I I don't blame you, you know? <laughs> because uh, you know it was a three th- three year total process. You could say two and a half years. Yeah, no, three years, because really it's like, you know, well, we screened it. We started principal photography. Like, mm-hmm. we started shooting it in 2015, mm-hmm. right? Then the first public screening of the film happened in 2017, right? So, like, you know, two years later, essentially, it was when, then we were still kind of doing some things. And then by 2018, then we had screened it. Like, we were then, it was like a year of, like, the mm-hmm. film festival circuit. So, it was, like, right. two years to really make the movie, then about a year of film festival circuit, and then getting distribution. We found distribution through a company called Indie Rights that got us on Amazon Prime and yep. 2BTV and things like that. So, that didn't then come out until, like, 2019. Mm-hmm. It was, like, four years by the time we got into, you know, now it could have been quicker. Sure. One thing that we were savvy enough as well, though, we kind of knew, like, you can't do something fast, cheap, and good. I yep. think we kind of approached it early on, like, hey, you know what? We're doing it, z- like, close to no budget, but it would be a radical, like, drastic mistake to then try to rush it, do it no budget, and then also try to make this thing come out. 
yeah, as fast as possible. Like that would have been a catastrophic. That would have been a catastrophic yeah. mistake. So I'm glad we didn't do that. We did mm. not do that. You know. Yeah, I mean, but uh, yeah, it took a long time, man. It took a long time, but a, but that's on because of the 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 small budget. Like I think there's a direct like correlation sure. there. That's why I kind of got turned off with the film business because. Now we're having some real talk. Now it's having, yeah, some yeah. real talk. Yeah. <laughs> that's what it's about. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, that's why I was, you know, I was always loving the idea of long form television format, right? Yeah, yeah. You Netflix have been is, saying that for a long time. For a long time. For a long time. It's easier because one guy, you know, one studio gives you a check and says, all right, create this. They own the IP. You, know, you definitely get some points on that, but it's, uh, they just give you a check and you can, you know, especially how good television was, was getting at some point, at one point, and it still is, you know, they, they'll give you more creative freedom to do long form, um, you know, episodic uh, storytelling. So, you know, it wasn't just, you know, sitcom TV anymore, or Law and Orders, things like that. It was actually people telling really great stories on, through the long form television format, you know, 10 episodes to tell a real, to really dive into a character, to really get it out. And there was really, you know, Breaking Bads, you know, shows we loved. And uh, I thought that was the way to go because of all these, there's so many networks coming up and there's so many streaming platforms coming up. People want their own content. They don't want to pay somebody else for, to show their content like you know, old cable channels did anymore. Now it's on demand, on demand viewing. And they were just, I felt like giving money away. You know, people were just making, you know, there were some good programs coming out, a lot, lot of bad programs coming out. You know, Netflix was just giving, you know, making, 10 shows a week, if you think about it, if you saw it. But um, I thought we could really, really excel there. But obviously, you know, it's tough to get that connection, really, to actually. Right. It's easier said know. than done. It's yeah. easier said than done. It's yeah. So I would love to done. just walk into Netflix tomorrow it's and so just much, obviously, get my so series much uh, funded. Done. I have some good ideas for some. But. You know, yeah. That's what I'm like. That was like, is in my mind, was, was that easier to go, easier route to go than getting funding from a few different places making a film and then finding distribution and seeing if you get any money back in the film. You know, like, was that, you know, what's, what's easier, you know, you get one check and the distribution is, is, is handled by the streaming platform, the service that hired you or finding a way to distribute your film and seeing if you can even make any money off of it. After yeah. Shot, See, I, th I think that's where like, you're definitely thinking with a pragmatic mm -hmm. level yeah, head. Yeah, I think sure. the, 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 the creative part of me is just like a moth to a flame. Like I know rationally mm -hmm. it's it's not one of the most, okay, here's the most solid kind yeah. of business. Like, hey, let me be an indie mm -hmm. feature film director, but I can't help it. The gravitational, that's, that, the that, gravitational pull for right. me to want to get the next one going mm -hmm. is, is, is it almost as intense as like eating and breathing. Right. It's like right yeah. after that. That's 100%. That's, <laughs> that's why, you know, you know, I jumped on the bandwagon when you know when you first started because I was leave, you know, like I said before, I was you know getting turned off by that bit that business, and then you started up and I jumped back onto you. But like doing it again is a scary proposition, you know. Yeah, it really is. Unless you know that, that funding, like everyone, you know, I have a friend, Anthony Cupio. He he, he made a, a, a independent film. He had, I think. Um, I think he almost had a million dollars, but he's like, nobody gives a shit about stealing ideas, but 
if you have a source of money, I'll cut your head to get there. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that's what it is. Like yes, that's the that's indie, so true. That's the indie 100%. life. Nobody gives a shit. About, like every every writer, every director, they have their own ideas and they think I, their idea is the best. Usually, some people are like I want to protect them. Up. Yeah, like, I'm not protect. I, I tell everybody yeah, about my ideas. Nobody cares about your ideas. They have their own <laughs> ideas. Uh, that's how it is. But to make that idea come to life. That source, everybody wants that. You know, everybody wants to get that. Yeah, that I will not source. tell everybody about my investors. Exactly, you know, yeah. potential investors or how much you nobody. Yeah. That's the, everybody keeps that secret. You know what I mean? Everybody. Yeah, you know, so and everybody's chasing that. That's what every independent independent filmmaker is chasing. I mean, even established filmmakers are chasing, you know, always, you know, funding for the next film, you know. I think Jack Nicholson said that money is to the filmmaker what paint is to the artist. Right. Yeah, true. Yeah, you know, but on the flip side, you know, to to young people watching, I mean, filmmaking has become so much cheaper. Yeah, sense absolutely. I mean, I mean, yeah, like the cameras we have now. Yeah, I mean, the cameras we had when we shot were pretty good, but even now, like, I like, literally own year. enough gear to mm-hmm. shoot a, another movie. Like, yeah, like literally, I, I don't give a sh- like. Yeah. I don't care about equipment anymore. I really don't care. I just care about people paying yeah. paying people because yeah. that's where I think the biggest headache comes from. Like, is again, that's where I get scared. of talking about projects doing one again like doing a lot of it ourselves like we, right right we couldn't do we that can't, we can't we do can't that. do it we're, like the trouble we're in our you know we're in our uh, we're late 30s you know and then people got families like that time we put into the trouble is yeah it's critical it's, 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 it's critical it, it was crazy you know yeah. it was but we were, it was a sprint you know what i mean so but when you have funding you actually could pay professionals to do certain things to do their jobs yeah keep everything in a certain vertical you know editing and you're just overseeing all those departments that's the way it should be done, you know, where it's not as backbreaking to the to the filmmaker, you know. Yeah, I agree. You know, that's the part, you know. So yeah, I the trouble. I think it turned out. I'm I'm very happy with the way it turned out, and I'm so happy with how it turned out. I you know, I'm so happy how it turned out. But I always say I was like, if we had a few million on that, it would have been. Oh yeah, like, like, of like course. True, like. The story was so good, man. The story, like, the story was so good. It was, you know, if if we just if if we had more money to 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 flesh it out more, like the more scenes, you know, scenes that we had to cut. Yeah, you know? that's true. Oh, it was it was it was, it was such a beautiful film, though. I'm yeah, so, I'm so happy with it. But that's how you you can't look at it that way. But you know, we're just you know we're just shooting the. That's true. Talking yeah. about it, you know what I mean? Yeah. No, exactly. Because it, it it well, it's paradoxical because mm-hmm. we we made a movie. For nothing, but like we, literally, that was the movie that we conceived of on a micro yeah. budget. That right. movie exists because right. of the absolutely budget. If we, level. if we had, so five, it's hard to. If it's we hard had five to, million. Then we would have shot something. Right, have it would have been a different. Movie. It would have been a whole different right. movie. So right. like, so so I find it hard to sort of look at it that way. Like you know, well said, well said. Yep. Um, but I agree with you though. At the same time, so I I do want to talk about. You know, we'll move on to our next segment, which is. I asked all our guests to talk about a couple of movie scenes mm-hmm. that are they're f- like, you know, it doesn't have to be their favorite movies of all time, but just a, a scene that really is a, a scene that they love for whatever reason. And usually I asked them ahead of time. I asked George and he wanted to show a scene from the film Copland, yeah. which is actually James Mangold's. Is it his debut feature film? I don't think it was his debut, but it was one of his bigger films. It was one of his yeah, early yeah, feature well, films. Yeah. And James Mangold uh, went on to, and direct walk the line yeah. 
and Ford versus Ferrari and the movie Logan. He's just a great director. I really like his work. Yeah, great, great filmmaker. Um, um, and this so f- tell us about Copland. It has a, it's really, it has a star-studded cast of yeah, it was, uh, Sylvester Stallone. It was and, a real, you know, Sylvester Stallone, uh, Robert De Niro, Harvey Keitel. Frank Peter, Vincent. Frank Vincent, Peter Berg. Edie uh, Falco. Edie Falco. Um, Ray Liotta. Yeah, Ray Liotta was so great in it, it was, actually. Um, Copland, uh, it was kind of Sylvester Stallone's first dramatic film in a really long I, I mean since Rocky won potentially I guess you know what I mean like he had gained a lot of weight for this film to be he's the protagonist of the film but it has it's to be such a specific role it really and is. it really showcases his acting because it's he, it's so it's so different mm-hmm. than any other any other thing that he's ever played and he's definitely not playing this tough guy badass cop no. he's playing like this Cop that literally the first scene that you see him in the film, he's playing pinball and these other corrupt sort of cops are in the place and he and it's literally saying, like, you have no authority. Right. You have no authority. He's a sheriff. He's a sheriff in a in a town in New Jersey where a lot of New York City cops live. Okay. So he's just a, a small town sheriff and it's a it's a cop town. That's why they call it cop land. So it's a little where all these uh New York City police officers live. And um it goes down in the story where those, these police officers are corrupt and there's an investigation going on and Sylvester's longest um, intertwined with that. But it's a, it's a great story. I mean, the film, I wouldn't say it's a masterpiece of a film. I wouldn't say it's a great film even. I loved, I loved the movie, though. That's one yeah. of the subjective things. As I remember watching this thing, you know, I think it came out in the late 90s where I had uh, those scramblers, remember, in the city where you could watch pay-per-view movies for free? Oh, sure. Yeah, so we got one of those where... And in the old days, in the '90s, pay per view, it was just. And then you watch the same movie yeah, over was, and over it, again. It, it was timed. You wouldn't. It wasn't on demand. So, if you wanted to buy something, you would. Uh, you would get it at a certain time, right? Yes. And then, uh, so Copland was one of the. It just had gone on pay per view, and I was just literally watching it on loop over and over and over. And this is when I was really like a cinephile, you know. And um, I just, I just really loved this film. I really, I, I really did. It was. Sometimes with slow pacing, but fantastic acting, fantastic acting. I mean, from everybody in it, really, I thought crushed it. And I think it was um, kind of an underrated film. And uh, the scene that I don't know if I want to play it out, but it was uh, we could play it out. Yeah, let's play it. It was um, it, this is it's a short scene, but I thought it was so pivotal in this film, and it's so well acted, and even more so, so well directed. And we'll talk about it after. Should I ask our producer? Uh, if we're going to lose our sponsorship on YouTube, if we play, I'm joking. We don't have any sponsors on YouTube right now. You can send a link to what for them to watch the film. <laughs> I'm completely kidding. Dude, Mo, I Dude, apologize. I'm sorry, I'm sorry for rushing in like this, but you were right. They tried to kill him, like you said, but he got away. Now he's running through the woods. He's like a scared animal. He's scared. You know what? That we motherfucker should be scared. Listen, Sheriff, I'm really sorry to have awoken you from your slumber, but it's over. Hands are tied now. You shut me down. No, no, listen to me. You're IA. That's why I came to you. You can do whatever you want. Remember you came to me and said, you want to be a cop? I'm being a listen cop now. I'm here. I'm I offered you, you a for chance. Some help. I need to do something. To I need to do this for listen myself. Listen to me, you the fuck. I offered you a chance when we could have done something. I offered you a chance to be a cop, and you blew it. You blew it. All right. So, so let's unpack that scene yeah, for a minute. It. So what is that? Maybe two minutes and 30 seconds around? Yes. There? Okay. And this is probably the most important scene in the film for our protagonist. Uh, Sylvester Stallone 
De Niro's character comes with them, or Eternal Affairs comes with them early in the film and says, they're investigating these these fishy characters. And Stallone says, oh, no, they're my friends. Nothing's going on. And then finally Stallone finds out all these things are happening. He goes back, but then you saw what happened. You know, it's a little too late now. And uh, this kind of drives our protagonist to realize that he has to take matters into his own hand now to make to make, make justice, you know, to serve justice. And... Um, what I love about this scene is that it is in a confined space, right? It's one little office. Right. Three actors. Yeah, Robert De Niro's eating lunch. Eating lunch. Like, and I think, I, I don't know if this is in the script. I, I never, I should have researched it, but like, I, it seems something that's so um, kind of something maybe he just thought as as an actor. Like, hey, I want to do something. Give me the napkin part. You know, like that whole thing with the tissue box. He just grabs some napkins. Like, this fucking place never gives you napkins. It's such a New York thing. It's, <laughs> it's such, such a New, New York, York thing. That he's, yeah, he's using <laughs> the paper bag at yeah, first until the other guy gives him the it's tissues. It's such a New York deli type thing where you're like, this fucking place never gives you napkins, you know? And it, it's just something like, uh, I, I think a great, like, I, I can't imagine it was written in the script. Maybe it was, but he performed it so well where it was so natural. And I think things are good when there's such a level of specificity mm -hmm. and that's, that's super specific. Right. So just, so just, uh, how important. So first I'll just say how important the scene is. Right. So in the film Stallone goes to internal affairs and says, Hey, I, I got some evidence now. De Niro turns him away. And then De Niro in the first part of the film, he's really courting him and saying, Hey, you can be a real good guy, this and that, and this and that. And then, he just, Stallone realizes he's just getting used, right? De Niro treats him like a piece of garbage right there, right? And then you, you can tell when Stallone walks out, he says, all oh, you guys are the same. And then, you know, De Niro goes, you deaf fuck, because Stallone has he's a hearing problem in the, in the film. So he just gets treated like a piece of garbage, and he realizes all these guys are using him, whether it be internal affairs, De Niro, or Harvey Keitel's guys with the corrupt cops. They're all playing him, and he has to take matters into his own hand. And now this leads to the climax of the film, right? This is the catalyst I mean, there's a multiple catalysts, but this one is like the final hurdle. All right, I'm the protagonist. Now I got to make justice happen or see justice through. And I thought it was such an important film. I mean, important part of the film that I don't know if it gets overlooked, but um, it just sets what happens next in the, in, in the movie. And I like the Nero's performance in this film. That, that what I'll say next, you know, the, act, the acting in the scene, Stallone... Is doing. He's playing a character that is kind of slow. It's kind of dumb. So he's he's nailing it. But it's then, a, and it's against type. That's yeah, what I love. Yeah. It's so so against. Right. It's so different from other films that he's I, played. I, I and, think the film before this one that the, the, the Stallone was in was like Cliffhanger or something like that, where you know he's this big shredded ripped dude hanging off mountains or something like that. So he's actually getting to this dramatic dramatic role, and he's he's playing the part of us of kind of a slower guy who doesn't take action. He's very meek in a sense, and. um De Niro's. This is one of the most underrated. De Niro has not many lines in this film. He's not the the lead bill in this movie, but he every every scene he's in, he kind of steals in this movie. And it's like there's a couple scenes with him and Harvey Keitel again, which is you know reminiscent of the old days, which you, you kind of love. But they when they're on screen together, kind of just they're not letting each other take the scene. You know what I mean? Like I, I love it. And um, but De Niro, you you see in this scene, like he just takes the whole scene over, you know, like it's just so, it's so natural. It really doesn't look like an actor is acting. You know what I mean? Yeah, it really it, does. It really is just. Like he reminds me of guys that I know, that know. almost that would like get pissed off like that. <laughs> that's like, how I know people to say things, you know, that's why. Yeah, like, yeah. you fucking blew it. You know, I, yeah. I've seen people say things like that. So yeah. that's why this scene resonates with me so much and that performance does. 
So that's the acting part of it. And then I, th- I start thinking about the directing part of it. What's so special about the scene in terms of directing? It's nothing really. It's a three camera shoot, maybe two cameras. And is, is there, there's a wide would, the sense. So maybe there's a right. In terms it, of shot structure, shot structure. I, I'm sure I'm sure that they only used one camera, one and camera, but I'm saying it's yeah. only three, really, really right. Shots, three. Right? Yeah. Three setups, three setups, yeah. it's a small office. Correct. Two actors saying most of the lines. Malik Yoba's got a few lines in there. He adds, he adds to it. The specificity of how the guys are eating, the way Stallone comes in, and the way that they're just like eating lunch, like you know, it's beautiful. I mean, it's just it's so natural, right? And the scene is so important. And I wonder, did the director really? He did so much. He did so well directing the scene by not doing too much, in a sense. And I think like some directors need to know that. Like I feel like, yeah, some directors. Over direct, maybe he did over direct actors. Maybe they rehearsed this like crazy. I don't know, but it seems like it's a tight location, three camera positions. Let's say that, and so much happens, and the brevity of the scene comes to comes to life. And I think the director did a hell of a job making this making this uh, scene come together. You know, so like maybe doing less was more in this time. Maybe he did more. I don't no, know. No, it's an interesting it perspective. Feels, yeah. It feels like he let these actors act. That's yes. what it feels like. Yeah, and I think that was. And then a that's all you need. Directorial choice, you know what I mean, and that's all he needed for the scene. That, them to do that, let De Niro, one of the greatest film actors ever, to take it over and show, make it come across to the audience what happened, you know. Yeah. And Stallone saying, "You're realizing, no one's going to do this but me. You guys are no help." You know what I mean? And then you could tell when Stallone leaves, and De Niro's just using him as a piece of property, basically. Oh, if this guy fucks some things up, we got a case again. Yay, he's just another, that Stallone, that Stallone is basically right. You guys are all the same. They don't give a shit about Stallone's character. They just want to make, sh- they all want to close their case. You know what I mean? So. True. Yeah, that director, that, that, that directing, I think, was top notch. And I'm not sure, again, like if, how much he directed the scene in terms of like rehearsing it, pushing it, writing that part in, this and that. But it just seems so natural. And I, I love that scene. It always stuck out with me. And obviously, the, the end when De Niro just gets up and says, you blew it. Like, I just, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've used that line to so many people over the years. Like, it's just <laughs> one of my favorite things. And sometimes people have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> I just love, I love using it, you know. You got to use the same exact facial yeah, expression. Like, you blew it. You blew it. <laughs> that part two, and he's like, my hands are tied. What do you want me to do? Like, like <laughs> that's not, nobody tells De Niro to, that's what they want him to do. Like, that's what he comes up yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, that was like, his, his choice, his, for sure. You know. Yeah, New York cop thing. My hands are tied. What do you want me to do? You know, like, yes, yeah. such a. That's a, yeah. That's you know? very good. And um, yeah, that scene really. Uh, I always love it every time. I I, I remember I, I when I used to watch it on that movie on replay. Obviously, there was no. Like I said, I would watch it multiple times a day. It was just on background, and then that scene would come up. I didn't have we didn't have YouTube or I didn't have the DVD of the movie where I could just rewind that scene. I would wait for that scene to come up. And kind of like memorize it and rehearse it almost. Like I just memorized, I memorized every single part, every part single of nuance yeah, yeah. of it. Yeah. it That's short, awesome. It's a short scene again, two minutes and thirty seconds, but it does it does so lot for the film. You know? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know? George, man, I appreciate the fuck out of you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, my thank you. Friend. I hope to be back more. Maybe we could just uh, absolutely, a hundred percent some other films. Yeah, and you know? and also we'll start to kind of start to talk about sort of topical things that are going on in the industry. So, you know, you know, just like kind of any news about Mm -hmm. like, Hey, this is sort of interesting. And like, Hey, what's this about? You know, sort of things. George, thanks so much, man. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in guys to the film situation. Thank you for listening to the film situation podcast. Today's guest was George Rudai. 
Hosted by Azef Kota. Executive producer Jeff Cutler. Music by Yuri Ryback.